Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're very privileged to have with us Dr. Paul LaRudy, and he's from the Bay Area. Is LaRudy the correct pronunciation, Paul? No, but it's the way I pronounce it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, as long as you're happy. <laughs> I dare I ask you what the real pronunciation is then? <laughs> well, it's an Iranian name originally. My father was Iranian. He was an Iranian Presbyterian minister. And he tried to get people to pronounce it uh, with the accent on the last syllable as the Iranian sound system is. So it would be Larudi is, is the correct pronunciation. But as, as you can tell, it didn't even work with his son. <laughs> I guess the best way to describe Paul is that he's a freedom fighter working tirelessly and fearlessly for peace and justice in Palestine. And he's been involved with the international solidarity movement. He's a leader of ISM, as it's referred to, in the Bay Area. He is a co-founder of the Free Gaza Movement. And Paul was a member of the U.S. delegation aboard the 2010 Gaza Freedom Flotilla, where the Israeli Defense Force in international waters attacked and killed nine unarmed flotilla aid workers. And some of our listeners may remember that one of the people in the flotilla jumped into the ocean to divert the Israelis, and that was Paul Arudi. And so we're very pleased to, also I I forgot to mention, Paul is a co-founder of Free Palestine Movement, and he also is a veteran of one of We Hold These Truths vigils in the Bay Area a few years ago. So welcome, Paul, and I'm going to turn over first to Chuck, who has got some questions for you. We're going to be talking about Paul's recent trip. He just got back from Syria, where he was an election observer for the presidential election. Chuck? Yes, and uh, Paul was also in Lebanon, I understand. And so uh, good to talk to you, Paul. Why don't you just kind of take it your way and perhaps start out with a little bit about Syria, because that's kind of on the top burner today with Israel bombing seven or eight Syrian air bases only yesterday or today. And we don't know the meaning of that. Maybe you can help us with that. Give us an idea about what life is like in Syria, what you saw there, uh, what the attitude of people there might be toward Bashar al-Assad's presidentship. And and I also might mention, Paul, that you were on a job there uh, where you actually uh, supervised elections in last year, 2013, about a year ago in May, which was a presidential election, and you were one of the few Americans who was there to help supervise that election. So we, of course, have heard that Bashar al-Assad is an absolute tyrant. No one there likes him. But some people who've been there don't say that. So let's just let you take it with Syria. Thank you, Chuck and Tom. There's just one slight correction there. 
the presidential election, there, there, there was no election last year, but this year on June 3rd was the presidential election, and it coincided with the elections in Egypt also, probably to a certain extent by chance. But I went for the first time to Syria in May of last year, and then I went again in April of this year, and then finally for the presidential election on June 3rd. The last one, there were a little over 100 observers from more than 30 countries that went at the invitation, well, I can say at the invitation of the Syrian government, but the, the only thing the Syrian government was to, uh, did was to provide facilities for those who came. Uh, it was underwritten, our, our trip was underwritten financially by several NGOs and uh, to a certain extent ourselves uh, coming from the U.S. and Canada and a couple of other places. And it was, you know, what any election observers will do. We observed what happened during the election. And what happened was quite a lot more than I expected. I expected it to be fairly routine, and it was not quite routine because we had an inkling of what might happen because the presidential election, which, by the way, is the first contested election, Previously, the elections over the last almost 40 years were by referendum. But this year, there were three candidates, and Bashar al-Assad was one of them. And Syrians were allowed to vote outside Syria five days earlier than they voted in Syria. In other words, they could go to their embassy, consulate, or whatever. And they did that in Lebanon, where there are more than a million Syrians currently either living uh, on a permanent basis or they're refugees. Uh, there are, in fact, more than a million Syrian refugees in, in Lebanon. So what happened on that day, on the 28th of May, was that hundreds of thousands of Syrians surged to the polls in Lebanon and d demanded to be able to vote. And, of course, the embassy couldn't cope with it, so they filled the streets. And so they, they opened a second day uh, in order to cope with the demand. And they did until they ran out of ballots. And they had around 200,000 ballots. So that gives you an idea that the Syrian people were absolutely obsessed with the idea that they had to vote. And they voted... Now, the outcome of the election was widely anticipated that it was going to be al-Assad. There was really not much question about it. So why did they come in such large numbers? And you could see the same thing in Syria, too, on the day that we were there. It was a national holiday party. I, I mean, they, they were dancing and singing, and everybody was going to the polls and and people came from countries like the United States and Canada where it was impossible for them to go to the Syrian embassy because there was none. And they had flown all the way from halfway across the world just to be able to vote. And this was true from in the Arab countries, Jordan and, and the Gulf also, where voting was restricted, and in Belgium where they, they put, put, put police 
on the street in front of the Syrian embassy to prevent people from voting. So they came to Syria to vote. So why was it so important for all these people to, to vote? Well, my interpretation of it is that this was essentially a vote of confidence and that if the purpose of an election is to determine what the will of the people is, then this, this election certainly accomplished that because it was very clear that, that the Syrian people back the Assad government uh, enormously. And I have to say that the Assad government has become a lot more popular since, let's say, a year ago. Uh, a year ago, I would have to say it still had a very uh, heavy following, but a NATO study confirmed that it was they estimated that 70% of the population backed the Assad government. And this is last uh, May of last year. But there are other ways in which you can determine that, and that is that as of now, it's estimated that close to half of the Syrian population are displaced. And the Syrian population is 23 million. So that's at least 10, probably closer to 11 million uh, of the Syrians that are displaced. Well, where are they displaced? They're not fleeing from government areas to opposition-controlled areas, even though the opposition controls close to half of the real estate in Syria. There are no refugee camps in the opposition areas, but there are refugee camps all over the government areas where roughly six or seven million have fled to the protection of the government. And it's, it's a lot for the government to handle, but they are handling it with, uh, of course, NGOs and humanitarian organizations and so forth. But they're providing whatever housing they can. Uh, sometimes it's a sports stadium or, or schools that have been evacuated in order to do this, but they're pri- providing everything. They're providing education. They're providing health care, all of these things. So... It's very clear that people have voted with their feet as well. They voted with their feet by leaving the rebel areas, the so-called rebels, and, and going to government areas. And the numbers of Syrians in government areas in Syria is at least twice as great as the number of refugees, Syrian refugees, outside Syria. So... Obviously, the government is doing something right, and they have assumed their responsibility to care for the the Syrian people, and in doing so, they have gotten the support of the Syrian people, who, upon whom they rely for recruits for their military, for example. I mean, they're not being forced to join the military. They, they're, uh, I mean, it, it is a requirement there, but but people feel obligated to, to join the military, and they take their role uh, in the military seriously because they feel that the state is threatened. So the picture that we're getting in the U.S. is extremely distorted. Of course, I'm, that's not going to be very surprising to you or <laughs> probably very many of the listeners that are, that are tuned in, uh, but we have to be very skeptical about this. Anyway... It was, it was amazing, and by, if you want a comparison, take a look at the Egyptian election, election that took place on the same day. Again, in that case, the outcome was not in doubt. 
We knew that General Sisi was going to win. But the difference was that the turnout in Egypt was realistically estimated at between 20 and 30 percent, maybe slightly over that. Whereas in Syria, everybody turned out to vote. Now, there, there are, I mean, there's a range of, of enthusiasm for the government, and some people are not enthusiastic for the government. Let's, let's be realistic. But by and large, they trust the government more than anybody else, and they certainly don't want to be governed by Islamic fanatics. That's a big part of the statement they made on Election Day. Yes, Paul, uh, this, of course, is kind of shocking, because we did not hear the results of the election here. I didn't see them at all. But uh, I did see the results in Egypt. Maybe Egypt kind of overwhelmed uh, what was going on there in the press. But uh, I would like to then ask you is, what can you tell us, what do the people there, the Syrian people there, who do they say the rebels are? We really just don't know who or what they are. Can you give us some insight uh, with some reasonable certainty or, uh, or objectivity about that and your reasons for thinking so? This uh, We could talk a great deal about that, but basically what it boils down to is that these are mercenaries and religious fanatics. And the religious fanatics are, you could call them also mercenaries to some, uh, to some extent, in that they're receiving a lot of support, you know, uh, military weapons and logistical support and, and this kind of thing. And if you talked about, let's say, two or three years ago, the support for what are today called moderates, which, in other words, they were not religiously motivated, let's say. They're more, the more secular groups. The secular groups have basically abandoned the fight. The only ones that are still in it are essentially in it for, for the money, if you will, because uh, a lot of them are in Jordan. They're being trained by the U.S. military. They're being paid by our tax dollars and by Saudi Arabia combined, $500 a month. And for them, it's a job because they're living in, in refugee camps and they, they need the work. I was sitting with a person of prominence that I know in Syria, and he received a phone call. And after he finished the call, he turned to me with the most bewildered look on his face. And he said, do you know who that was? That's the biggest terrorist in, in uh, Daraa in the south, where uh, the U.S. influence is greatest. And he was calling to congratulate me on the election results. <laughs> <laughs> so what that, tells, what that says to me is that, you know, for him... He's being given some attention by the American government. He, he's being paid by the American government, but he's still maintaining his contact. And one of the contacts was the person that I was talking to, and he, he knew that this election was important to that person, so he called and said, uh, congratulations. So, you know, it's, it's very different from what... What we yes. understand. But Paul, do you see or have you heard about connections between the CC rebels 
in Iraq and uh, the rebels you're just talking about in yeah, you're Syria. About and what can you tell us about that? Yes. The so-called uh, ISIS or ISIL with an L, uh, both are a rough translation from the Arabic using different words in the translation. And these are a group of essentially religious fanatics, the ones that have been chopping off people's heads, uh, slicing open pregnant women. I can tell you stories that I heard from, from refugees that had fled their areas. It's uh, horrible, horrible, horrible what, they, what they're doing, because if you're not Sunni Muslim, then you're an apostate and, and have to be killed. And if you are Sunni uh, Muslim and you don't know how to pray properly because you're essentially in a secular state, that's what, that's what Syria is. It's a, there are people who don't pay a lot of attention to, to their religious affiliation. And it's almost a, an insult to ask somebody what their affiliation is. It's a very secular society. So these people who are nominally Sunni but didn't know how to pray properly, they also got, got, uh, got the sword. These folks are a loose confederation of uh, religious fanatics that are trying to create something equivalent to the 8th or 9th century Muslim caliphate and the glory days uh, unifying the region. And they're getting financial backing to do that, mainly because the countries that are providing the backing, the NATO countries and the Gulf states, want simply to cause a lot of trouble for Syria. And, of course, uh, for Iraq as well. Right. Well, they, they've always been in Iraq to a large extent, profiting from the discontent of the Sunni population in Iraq, which used to be in control under Saddam Hussein, but now because the country is essentially mainly in the hands of the Shiite community, which was disenfranchised under Saddam Hussein, they uh, find a, a haven and a supportive population, and so they're working in cahoots with them, and they're, uh, they straddle the border, they're the... They basically, it's the Euphrates River Valley, from the Turkish border in the north down to just above Baghdad. So how do you know the Saudi influence is in these two related, seemingly related efforts, because they sound so similar? And how do you know that the U.S. is actually providing leadership and financing? How do we, how do we prove that? Congress passed a bill raising the... U.S. contribution towards the salaries of these. It, there's no secret about this. You, they, they passed a bill agreeing to raise the salary of the fighters in, that, are, that are in Jordan. And, of course, the rest of it is, a lot of it is quite overt about what's being supplied to these fighters. The fighters have never said that, we're, that they're separate groups. And the name of their group, in fact, the, the coalition, is the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, you could say, or the Levant. And they use the term Sham, which is best translated as Greater Syria. 
meaning the, the Fertile Crescent. So they have never made any idea that they're interested in Syria alone or, or in Syria per se. It's, it's only part of, the, of what they have in mind. What, what about Israel's role? Uh, what is your feeling about that? What are the feeling of parties involved in Syria? Uh, you Israel's know, you can't role. make some of this stuff up. There are religious uh, leaders of this group, not all of them, but some of them, that have actually done interviews on Israeli television and radio by Skype or by telephone, saying, uh, we're, we're fighting the same fight. You <laughs> so they're, they're collaborating. I know it sounds crazy, but they're collaborating with Israel. And 900 of them have been treated in Israeli hospitals in the, in the Golan Heights, where they're free to come and go. And basically, they're, they're working with each other. It sounds absurd, but after all, Israel's interest has been, since the day it was formed in 1948, to weaken in any way it can the potential rivals, enemies, whatever you want to call it, in the, in the surrounding area. And so they, they wreak havoc on Gaza and on South Lebanon and uh, on all the neighboring countries, uh, in effect. So this is, this is what they're doing in, in Syria. Now, Syria is reasserting its sovereignty. It is regaining territory. I was in several of the areas that had been recaptured from the opposition. And so this being the case, it's very clear to me, at least, that the opposition is not going to win and Bashar al-Assad is there to stay partly because he's supported very strongly by Russia and China and, of course, Iran. But Russia is certainly the most powerful supporter that they have. And, and that's uh, partly because Russia's only base on the Mediterranean Sea is in Tartus, just north of Lebanon on the Syrian coast. So, and I, I'm quite sure that Putin has said to Obama, listen, why are you doing this? You are not going to win here because Syria is more important to, to us than it is to you. We are not going to let it go, and we have the means to prevent you from overthrowing Bashar al-Assad. So I'm quite sure that this conversation has taken place, and Russia has made good on its uh, commitment. So Bashar al-Assad is not going anywhere, and the, the Syrian people support his regime, as most people do in time of war, you know. I, they, they don't, don't want to try anything new at that time. Paul, I have a question here, a little bit of a comment. In <coughs> April, I went to a fundraiser. It was co-hosted uh, the Students for Justice in Palestine at Arizona State University with a Syrian group. And before I went, I had warm and fuzzy feelings about the event, but when I went there, I... It was uh, kind of interesting uh, at the at the least, but I think these were representatives of the Free Syrian Army. They had a young Syrian that had been gassed last August. I met him. Did you? Yeah. And you know, of course, he was violently against uh, Assad. He said, you know, that the government did it. You know, so it was it was a real. You know, they were trying to raise money, so it was a a real tearjerker almost for a lot of people there that 
the regime was so bad. Could you comment? Are there, is the Free Syria Army, and they, they acted like these other groups were of no consequence in uh, Syria. Could you talk about that issue? Sure. Yeah, he, he also came with some of the organization, and they're represented in the United States by the Syrian American Council, which is an anti-Assad group heavily supported financially by unknown sources, although some of their satellite groups are getting grants from the U.S. government to deliver supplies to the opposition fighters. But when I talked about this, actually, I brought it up in Syria to some other opposition. This is the peaceful opposition in Syria, and they were shocked that any group of Syrians would actually ask for Syria to be bombed by the United States. And they said, these people are not Syrians. We don't necessarily support the, the current government, because I was talking to oppositions. Uh, we don't necessarily support the current government. But we, we would never ask for Syrians to be bombed by Western powers to bring about a change here. So we're getting a distorted view in this country. We're seeing what's actually a small uh, but well-financed and well-organized group in the United States that is presenting the point of view that actually the administration would like to, to see here because they have their own intentions with regard to Syria. Thank you. Well, that, that I smelled a rat when they were talking about bombing, as you mentioned there, and, and likened it to what we did in Libya, of course, which we know now as a, was a disaster. Yeah, and talking about the U.S. role here, if you look at the Seymour Hersh article, I've forgotten the name of it, from, from 2007, or, or to General Wesley Clark's comments even earlier than that, it was very, it's been very clear for a long time that Syria and, as we know, Iraq and Libya and others were, were on the U.S. hit list for what Condoleezza Rice used to call the New Middle East. This is transformation, regime change throughout the Middle East. And part of that was in Iraq, following the ambassador who succeeded Bremer, was John Negroponte, who's famous for the death squads in Nicaragua and in Central America, and his lieutenant for part of the time was Jeffrey Feltman, who became the ambassador to Syria and then was uh, removed. But that was about the time that death squads started to appear in Syria, but it wasn't really known until afterwards what was going on. And this coincided with those uh, peaceful demonstrations that took place in Syria as part of the so-called Arab Spring. Well, the demonstrators were perfectly sincere, and I support their intentions. But part of the instigation for this, or else perhaps just profiting from this, simultaneously there were attacks on the police and other armed you know, government uh, forces and significant numbers of them were killed, and they were killed in such a way, like in Central America, where 
the demonstrators, the peaceful demonstrators, some of them were killed, and the police were killed by third parties on the rooftops firing at both of them. And again, this was not, not really known until later. But both of these sides assumed that the other side was doing the killing, and that put them at each other's throats. So stories about the brutality of the Assad regime, please take them with a, with a grain of salt. Now, the Assad regime, having said that, uh, we have to say that it is a security state. And they act as if they're paranoid, and guess what? They have a reason to be paranoid. So they don't tolerate dissent easily. They tolerate peaceful dialogue, but they don't really tolerate dissenters, and they're very suspicious about people that they think might, might cause them problems. So it's not, it's not a free and open society, but it is a society that, that works. Paul, do you have any final thoughts on the effect of this upon the Palestinian people, uh, the neighbors here been squeezed in between? How is this going to affect them? Well, of course, it's taken attention away from them. The Palestinians have been pawns in this. Yarmouk, the, the largest Palestinian refugee camp in Syria, became a place that was penetrated by fighters, some of them Syrian, but uh, also there were Palestinians who were allied on one, with the opposition fighters, and they made use of this. So uh, a lot of Palestinians, in fact, most of the Palestinians in the Yarmouk camp, estimated at 180,000, have become refugees again. And I, I met a lot of them uh, who were living in very crowded, uh, evacuated school buildings in Damascus and so they've become pawns and it has split the Palestinian movement uh, Hamas used to have its headquarters or at least its headquarters outside Gaza uh, used to be in Syria and their supporters in uh, Qatar Qatar began supporting the Islamic uh, fanatics and so Hamas had to make a choice and they chose to go with Qatar and so it's been very disruptive to the Palestinian resistance. It has split Palestinians on both sides of the issue. It's a distraction allowing Israel to, to continue its ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian areas in Palestine, the West Bank, and so forth. And so it's been very bad for the Palestinians as a result of that. Thank you. Are there any other questions? Well, I certainly appreciated hearing the uh, analysis and update that you have given. What would you say are suggestions that you know anyone could do being outside of that area? Is there anything that can be done in addition to efforts like these to help bring about awareness? And what might that awareness help? Uh, you know, what would, what would be the end result uh, that you would think for such efforts? Well, one of the biggest things that I think we can do in the U.S. is to stay out. And I was immensely encouraged last September when the U.S. finally did not engage in direct military intervention in Syria. And I was even more 
encouraged by the enormous participation of the American electorate in calling their members of Congress in vast numbers and in overwhelming numbers to prevent the U.S. from being... I'm sure that wasn't the only consideration for the administration in staying out of Syria, at least direct involvement. But that was a good sign, very good sign. And it was almost spontaneous. So anything that we can do to bring greater awareness to the American public. And one starting point is the organization with which I'm affiliate, uh, affiliated, which is the Syria Solidarity Movement. And you can just go to syriasolidaritymovement.org, and we try to post as much of the information that you wouldn't find elsewhere. And there are a number of organizations that are devoted to the study of this situation and the questioning of policies and so forth. And you can find links to them at the Serious Solidarity Movement. That's certainly what we all can do, as you are doing, for example, with the case of Christian Zionism. Well, great. Thank you so much, Paul. That was a very interesting viewpoint of being on the ground there in Syria and we appreciate all that you do for the the freedom issue, particularly for the Palestinians. And thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.